Donald Trump has laid claim to a tract of land on the moon and has plans to build the first off-planet golf course. That is just like so just deliciously bonkers that I, I'm going to have to say that's a moonshot, right? You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Hey, and welcome to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers, the not-so-serious business podcast designed to help you spark your curiosity, creativity, and imagination. As ever, Simon, how are you? Very well, John. Pleasure to be here. We're always keeping a curious eye out on things, which is the hallmark of a good occupational philosopher. So uh, what's caught your eye this week? John, it's a very short statement, and it was this. It's the government's job to be open and try new things followed by, which caught my attention, things are a lot different now to the 1950s. We need to be open to new possibilities. Have you ever heard those words uttered by a government? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was it. That was the the extent. There was a a little bit more, but the, the context is they're looking at the school hours in New South Wales around, again, you know, the world is changing, learning needs are changing, parents are changing with their ebb and flow as well. But I just heard that and I almost spat out my morning coffee when I heard that's the government's job to be open and try new things. Now, we never talk politics, but I was impressed, <laughs> impressed by that that sort of idea. Impressed that they're going to haul the education system out of the 1950s. Well, at least they're at least they're open to trialing things. And some other principles came on, like we'll sort of talk back radio version of your maybe Radio Two or something in the morning. Uh-huh. And a principal called in and said, "Yeah, we've been experimenting with it. Ten years ago, we switched to eight till two, and everyone uh-huh. loved it. And they said, you know, there were all different things happen around that. And another principal called in and said, yeah, we did a similar thing just with the parents and the kids. We experimented with what worked and they finished at one thirty, even or quarter past one with no lunch. And yeah, it's more work done. Kids loved it, all that type of stuff. So I like experimenting and trying new things. Now, what's caught your yeah. curious eye, John? Well, whatever the timing is for this episode, it's close enough to the Winter Olympics. So I always get slightly uh, interested in the Winter Olympics, probably more so than the the summer ones to some degree. It seems a bit more exciting, but I always feel a personal connection because my daughter, her name is Elsa. And (laughs) the reason we called her Elsa is she, uh, that's inspired by a little island off the coast of Scotland, which is where my wife's family is from or where dad was from called Ailsa Craig. And Ailsa Craig is where all of the granite for the curling stones for all Olympic competitions is harvested from. So there's a tiny little place just on the mainland and they take all the granite across and there's a little workshop that has since 1924 been creating the curling stones for the Winter Olympics. And of course, England's quite good at at the curling, or Team GB is quite good at curling. So I always feel like I'm invested. My heart is in <laughs> Team GB curling. So there you go. There you go. I like it. That's quite good. I thought you, Tiny little island. I thought you were going to say my daughter's Elsa, and so I immediately went to Frozen. Yeah, see, and that's... <laughs> when I thought, so if I go to Scotland, if I go to Scotland, they go, oh, Elsa Craig. <laughs> <laughs> if I go, come south of the ball, they go, Elsa. And I say, no, she's not named after a Frozen <laughs> character. <laughs> so yeah there you go elza as in elza craig and and she's responsible for all of the curling stones that you're currently seeing 
Fun, being, fun fact. Being fun brushed fact, across the ice. Fun fact to fun share fact. at dinner table tonight. Absolutely, yeah. Every time it's on the telly, I go, do you know? Dad, shut <laughs> you know, up. Don't tell Here us we go. Yeah, don't tell us that again. <laughs> so, Simon, it's a guest episode and uh, very excited about today's episode. But tell us, who do we have with us today? Well, John, this guy is one curious cat. He's left a footprint across the globe with multiple careers in music advertising, design, technology, and innovation, and sold his Silicon Valley startup. He's the grandmaster flash of innovation, inspiration, and transformation. He's a multilinguist and a Guinness World Record holder to boot, and I think the first CEO we've ever had on our show. Welcome to our show, Mike Parsons. John, Simon, it is great to be here, and I feel I'm already richer for the experience because I know a lot more about granite and Scotland. So I've already got a win on this one. Okay, so we'll cut straight to it. What's caught your curious eye this week? Well, I came home this evening to a book that I had had recommended to me in a conference call just maybe six, seven days ago. And it has really caught my eye because it's called The Back of a napkin, this book, and its uh, subline is solving problems and selling ideas with pictures. And I feel like this might be a long lost relative of yours. Dan Rome is the author slash artist. I feel like is he your brother, uh, Simon Banks? He's, he's a brother in spirit. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. Yeah. This, I know this book well, and you you might have received that and gone. Well, I've got a few skills up my sleeve in this already from memory, Mike. If you've uh, we've done a little bit of drawing before, so we have. I, I really enjoyed our drawing uh, session that we did in Sydney. I think it was 2019 that we may have done it together. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, and John went down that footpath last year as well. So you've you, both been versed in the Bible of a uh, visual storytelling. I was gonna. I was gonna <laughs> say we're both survivors <laughs> of a Simon Banks workshop. <laughs> It's very good. I'm fantastic at drawing tortoises now, I have to say. Well, that, that, that back of a napkin, though, Mike, just tell mm. us a bit more. I presume it's sketching out ideas or prototypes or something like that that you can quickly yeah, it, and, create. Yeah, and in particular, what Dan Rome, the author, is doing here is basically saying, look, guys, if you've got an idea, a vision, a creative concept, you can really lean on visual thinking uh, to great shared subject matter. I think that's one of the things that gets you out of the blah, blah, blah into the let me show you and we can share it in a different medium. But he also says you can apply it to problem solving. So it's not just when you've got the idea, it's when you're like, what the hell is the problem? So that's uh, Dan Rome, uh, the back of a napkin. And the idea, back of a napkin, you don't need a whiteboard, just turn over your, literally turn over your notebook, you just sketch it out. And I can't tell you how often I will draw in a meeting and I just force myself to draw because it gives something people to look at. And even if I go, mm. oh, that doesn't really make sense, they'll go, oh, but here's how it does make sense. So you have a lot of joy in that book. Yeah, thank you. And I think the way I would apply this is that, you know, when you're in a group of people who are just merely talking about an idea, what we fail to realize most of the time is everybody in their mind is drawing pictures and all of those pictures look different. <laughs> <laughs> so we're seeing pink and small and he's seeing blue and, and huge. And that's the power of, you know, making creativity come alive in, in a direct experience, uh, making it live is you kind of get out of your head, but you create a common language. 
which I think is essential for creativity because once you get on the, as they say, on the same level, once you're feeling it, then you can really go places. It's, it's just like the relationship between a band and the concert audience. Once you get on the same wavelength, you know, and I think visual communication is a great way of doing that in work, you can go great places. Was that just out of interest, uh, Mike, was that something that you always quite good at doing? Were you always somebody who thought visually and would sketch things out or has it come more and more into the work that you do when you're trying to convey and present and communicate to others? That Did Simon's uh, course, for example, inspire you to go, okay, I can do more with this? Yeah, I, I think that I just tried to have an infinite appetite to learn because I think that's a proxy for growth. I quit college. I quit Australian University after seven weeks and uh, was quite a disappointment to everyone at high school. So at a certain point, I had to decide to actually learn some stuff and get on with things. So that deconstructive mind of pulling things apart, looking at their base elements, asking how does this work, why does this work, is something that I've always done. And then I walked in 2001, I walked into a, an advertising agency in Amsterdam and sat with two creative chaps and the, these two Dutch guys their way of greeting me was bringing out their favorite CD, Crowded House, <laughs> and insisted I spend the morning singing Crowded House songs with them. And I thought, gee, you know, this feels like a pretty good job. I think I'll stay here for a while. <laughs> so, look, you've, I can all, we've already given a sense of where this conversation will go, which is great because you do a lot of things. So what would you say your intersections are? Well, in very practical terms, you know, I love technology, I love music, I love solving business problems. And what I understand to be very true at the center of all that is humanity, human experience, user experience. So, you know, every good business plan is only as good as the people that execute it. A song is only as good, you know, when you're looking at the song sheets, right? and you're looking at the notes on the page, you still got to play them. And who plays them? A human. And this pattern just plays out in all shapes and forms of my life. I'm a huge fan of Zaha Hadid, the architect. In fact, as we're chatting, I will grab for you this this tome that I got for Christmas. Look, I have her collective works and uh, she challenged the status quo. You know, she had these great ideas, but they actually got built as well. That's not so much a coffee table book, Mike, as much as a coffee table. John, let's go next level. Let's call it a weapon. Shall we just call it a weapon? What do you think? I was assaulted by a book of design. Uh Uh-huh. Thanks, Zaha. That's it. And, uh, Mike, as you you described that, the sort of the interests, the passions, the intersections coming together around music, technology, solving business problems, and then into that idea around agile and some of the design thinking sort of pivotal moments or things that you can readily call out that were some of the stories or some of the experiences you had that has taken you this way you mentioned there just being in Amsterdam and a moment where you went I like this but maybe before that were there some some moments where you went, I want to go this way this is this is yeah. what I'm really sort of passionate about so it was sort of a, an awakening over many decades I would say perhaps the first thing I remember is sitting at my grandfather's architectural table. He was an architect, as was my uncle as well. And he used to give me this incredibly large stack of Derwent pencils and to say, go crazy. And so that's perhaps where my true love of architecture comes from. 
But more recently, I remember in San Francisco in 2013, I met my, what was then to become co-founder of a company, Tom Chi, who's sort of like the world's foremost guru in rapid prototyping. And we spent two years doing some just amazing things together. And I'll never forget him showing me the power of rapid prototyping an idea and bringing it to life. And it was like, I moved from London to San Francisco to find this answer. And I can't believe in one person. I really had this big question about de-risking and big business ideas, big product ideas. I had this question of like, how do you test it before you build it? How do you create this great level of confidence before you launch? And I met this one guy, Tom Chi, and it literally in just our first day of working together, I was like, this is it. I can't believe I've stumbled onto it. And the rest they say is history. Now, speaking of history, along the way, and not many people can say this, you've claimed a Guinness World Book of, a Guinness Book, (laughs) I've I've written this wrong, (laughs) a Guinness World (laughs) Record. There we go. Simon, Simon, let let me help you. I think what you you were trying to say to us is you've been drinking way too much Guinness. Okay, now continue. (laughs) Well, I haven't because I'm on a detox, but that's uh, another thing which has caught my eye. But look, you've claimed this uh, Guinness World Record. Yes. How does it work? How do you know you've done it? Is it someone standing in a a lab coat with a clipboard and a a stopwatch? And how does it work? What do you get? What was it in? Many questions. Okay. Yes, there was a lot of questions there. So we were very lucky. So this takes us geographically to San Francisco. This takes us to 2010. And this is where we started working on the launch of Xbox Connect. Now, if you can remember that long ago, if we dust out the cobwebs, there was a time where um, having a motion sensor combined with your console for gaming was one hell of a big idea and very disruptive. And I was very fortunate with a team of people. We did the global launch for Xbox at our advertising agency. And subsequently, I'm trying to remember that, I think we sold 4.1 million units in a weekend. And that just smashed. A weekend? Yeah. And this is 20, I think this was 2011, 20. Pretty good weekend. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was a big weekend. We didn't sleep much. We had to go around to, to all of the uh, Walmarts to buy it. I'm joking. You couldn't buy that many. So we told us a great story that there was like a game changer. I mean, as a marketeer, what better story to tell than disruption? Like the market, as you know, it is about to change forever, which is a mouthwatering sensation for any marketer. So we did that. We're very lucky. That's a highly audited segment of the industry. So you don't really need Mr. Guinness in his suit to turn up. Rather, they just go, oh, damn, you really broke a few records here and and well done. Alternatively, if you're trying to eat as many hot dogs in 30 minutes, they will invite one of those chaps to come over while you gorge yourself because it's less formal, less audited. Equally, we were as it felt like we had just swallowed 30 hot dogs when <laughs> making that campaign because we had to do a global launch. We worked with a fascinating camera rig, which was a camera rig that was circular, and we didn't shoot with one camera. We shot with a whole rig of a 360 circle with filled with cameras so that 
we could shoot a bit like the Matrix, you know, how Neo does that famous thing and the camera goes around yeah. him. Yeah. We kind of took that to another level so that you could understand that you were untethered, unshackled from the device, no cords, you could just gesture and away you go. So, Mike, let's talk a little bit about Moonshots, because Moonshots is the name of your hugely popular podcast, where you go behind the scenes of the world's greatest thinkers, innovators, entrepreneurs, superstars, and you try to discover some of the secrets of their success. So let's have a bit of a roll call first, and then I'll, I'll pose a question around this, which is you've, you've had episodes where you've talked about Jeff Bezos, Ed Catmull, of Pixar, Jack Dorsey, James Dyson, a quite recent episode on James Dyson, I note, which was very interesting. And then you've got academics and authors like Simon Sinek, Malcolm Gladwell, Brené Brown. And then you extend to architects and Lady Gaga and <laughs> Serena Williams. I mean, it's a, and, and oh, that was it. And, and another favorite, which is Wim Hof. I mean, it's quite an eclectic mix. So yeah. in, in all of that, I suppose the thing is, as you've gone out, with a certain desire to understand what unites them because that's such a diverse range i suppose what's the some of the real learnings and things that unite such a mm. wide group of people yes yeah, so this was very accidental uh, the answer to your question john what ties them together is an amazingly coherent model so the first three ingredients of this moonshot model is personal transformation, the second is critical thinking, and the next one is leadership. And these all play out in general in entrepreneurial pursuits. And what is fascinating, John, is I can really, I mean, it's just pattern detection. With over 170 episodes, you just go, oh, wow, Look at that, the way this NFL coach, Bill Belichick, thinks is actually really similar to how Zaha Hadid thinks, who was an Iranian-born woman who grew up and learned to become an architect in the 50s and 60s in Britain. Could you imagine a more stuffier old boys club than architecture? The Royal British Association <laughs> of Architects. <laughs> and here she comes yeah. and says, hey, there's 360 degrees. How about we use all of them? And they're just like, excuse me, young lady, right? Now, here's the thing. She has this incredible dedication to being resilient. She talks about every single obstacle as being something that not only she had to get through for obvious reasons as an immigrant, as a woman, but she said, they propel me and make me stronger. And do you know what? Yako Willing, Navy SEAL, says the same thing. Michael Jordan, athlete, says the same thing. So the good fortune that we had, we thought we were just going to study some entrepreneurs doing cool stuff, but we discovered almost like an operating system, like a very integrated model that they all use. And sure, there's some variants, but in the end, you want to talk about one of the fundamental things we've discovered, which is resilience. Oprah Winfrey, she was fired from television because they didn't think she was a good TV personality. Walt Disney <laughs> was fired because he didn't have much imagination. The child carer of Einstein, you know what? 
nothing special will come of this kid. He's still not talking at the age of four. So, you know, for me, resilience, whether we're talking Navy SEALs of today or the greats of yesterday, this is just one of those many ingredients that we believe is what it takes to be the best version of yourself. Now, is there, I guess, a follow-up question. Is there something you might have touched on already that really surprised you out of all of this? Is there one thing that was the, I never would have picked up on that? I mean, you may have already answered it. Look, you know, I don't know how I'm sort of influenced just by my personal journey in this comment, but I would say that mindset is something that all of those people do and they don't just work in themselves, they work on themselves. And that's what I mean by mindset because if you watch that great series, The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, Forget his innate physical ability. He turned up and he wanted it more than anybody else. Who turned up the first to practice? Michael. Who was the last to leave? Michael. Who played the hardest at practice? Michael. What did Michael say? Games were easy because nobody was playing as hard as he was, like he would train at training. So games became easy. And the fact that we have a choice to think like this it's actually choice. This to me was like, whoa, I just thought we were going to learn some cool business model techniques, but hey, I was wrong again. <laughs> and that, that philosophy that you have with the show, which is learning out loud, as it would be termed, I suppose, what's the impact of that learning out loud as you've gone through this, this series? as opposed to other ways of learning? Because you could just be absorbing this, reading it and taking it all in yourself and making your way through that. But there's something about the way you discuss it with your co-host and the way you bring it to life in your discussion that presumably has an impact or it lands better, it is absorbed differently. What's that about? Yeah. So let's get into that one. God, we got very long questions today, (laughs) Simon. We didn't didn't cut our script down at all, did we? If it's not under a paragraph, (laughs) we don't ask. I just saw Mike nip off for a cup of coffee while I was posing that one. All right, I'm back. He just got back. I've been been vacuuming, John, while you've been talking. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, learning out loud. Well, there's two parts to this. The first thing is... What invariably I discovered through a lot of mistakes was that if I didn't share my ideas, they kind of sucked. And what I learned pretty early in my career is like, if I was like, hey, what about this? Like, what if, or how might we? And I actually did that together with others. I was like, wow, you know, what they just said, actually, I think that's just made my ideas so much better. So look, learning out loud and ask yourself, okay, we just You mentioned James Dyson. We just did a big breakdown on his work and how he did it. But then kicking that around together and trying to say, well, how did he do it? And then importantly, how do I do it? That's a really creative process because what is revealed there is, you know, he toiled. I mean, we talked about prototyping. He did thousands of prototypes prior to any success for years in the back shed by himself, i.e., shall we do a segue to resilience? We'll come back. My point here is that, you know, if you share, converse, discuss, but have some structure to it, you'll go forward. And a really, a quote, I can't attribute the quote, you're probably familiar with it, 
But this just blew me away, guys. Like if you want to talk about mastery, creativity, which is if you want to learn something, teach it. Just on the note about what you said a second ago as well, Mike, and I get that around the teaching piece. I think that is absolutely key. As you articulate it out, it starts to form differently in your own mind as you say it out loud. You said sharing with structure, and I thought that was really interesting because, of course, that's one of the things, particularly in corporate life, organizational life, is people might be encouraged to say, hey, share, share, say whatever, say the what-if questions, but there's no structure to that, so it descends into a bit of a chaotic conversation or things get shut down. So when you say share with structure, that means you have to create the right environment for people to share and have this learning out loud experience together. Yes. Yeah. So, well, let's just go to some basics here. I think if I wanted to think of like a really simple recipe that the three of us couldn't do, at the end of this show, we could say, what did we learn about doing this show? And if we would record again tomorrow, what would we do differently? That's really structured learning right there. And what's happening is you're creating these constraints, one that I didn't really, that I only inferred, which was time. If you can compress the time a lot, that's really good for learning. We always say when you're prototyping, like literally try and do as many prototype sessions in one day as possible because the learnings just become so clear because you've just seen it for the 14th time. Simon's on his third coffee. You're already on the mojitos, John. But the pattern becomes clear when we test with the users. They hate this product, but they love this feature. Well, maybe we should go and pursue that. We're pretty confident we've had the signal now. So I think a time constraint and forcing yourself into expressing what did we learn, but then here's a really good control question. What are we going to do next or what are we going to do differently is another way of going. And then you that's when you like, those are the questions when you're in a group activity and everyone goes, Mm, and no one can say anything because you're literally hearing the cogs of learning happening. They're just cranking through and they're like, you know what? How about this? And the crucial thing, just to shortly, just to be brief here, is when anyone offers anything in those environments, there's only one way to respond. Awesome. Great. And let me build on that. And how might we do that? Uh, You know, without doubt, Safety is the underlying prerequisite condition in order for people to share and grow together. And I like this idea with uh, rapid prototyping. And a prototype can be anything, just to explain what it is. It doesn't have to be something you've put together in a lab. The more basic it is, the better, which I always think. Yeah. Think of all the, the craft cardboard cartons and tissue boxes and toilet right. rolls and string and tape. And the more basic, the better. And what I'll always, or drawing or even act it out if it's a movement or a transaction, the quicker you do it, it's like the best brainstorm you'll ever, ever have. Like you often think yes. to brainstorm, you need to sit in a group and someone's writing on the wall, but the act of making and doing things with your hands and then interacting in that environment, it's literally like an ideas factory then and there. And I think if you almost, you thought, we'll go to prototyping before we do anything else, uh, even though it's not in the order of a lot of these innovation yeah. processes, the ideas that fly out of that are, are crazy. Well, you've actually, you've seen this happen. We've yeah. been in a session together where I had a lot of super senior execs who probably hadn't illustrated an idea in about 10 years. <laughs> but we said, okay, we're going to do six sprints a day for two days in a row. We're going to lock you into this. It was a nice room, actually. It was a yeah. nice place. But we're going to do some work. And this time constraint is really great for creativity because at a certain point, there's no time to think about it. Just 
do. Just a follow up to that, Mike, and I'm just thinking about some of the work, obviously, that I do as well with, with teams and the like. And in that trying to respond to a problem or an issue where they don't give themselves enough time, they try to think, okay, we'll have a, we'll have a 90 minute session. And you kind of feel that you just run out of runway. You don't have enough time to actually do the work. Is, is there something, I don't, I don't, probably no easy answer. Is there a magic sort of, you've got to get people for two days and you can't let them out and you can't let them drink or eat. <laughs> something magical will turn out Jeez. at the end of it. You know, <laughs> Simon, I don't think John's workshops sound very fun. Do you? No, he's only got one client. <laughs> no, I'm, str- on. I'm struggling with that. <laughs> Are they on an island in the middle of San Francisco Harbour at all? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> that should be a pretty cool venue to do one in Alcatraz. But sometimes I find that they don't give enough time. They kind yeah, of I'll, take I'll tell you the problem. They go, oh, we'll do 90 minutes here. We'll do yeah. 60 minutes here. And you so, get nothing. There's no flow emerges. So there is a really important thing that needs to happen before you bring people together, which is agree on the topic and the question at hand. And we devote in, in our practice a lot of time to defining the problem. What you're experiencing, John, is you've got people in a room who don't even agree on the problem. So it is incredibly hard to make progress because someone's like, yeah, but you know, no, the real problem is this and the real problem is, uh, oh, hang on. We're actually, you're actually not having a, like a prototyping session. You're having what I call an alignment session. So getting everyone in violent agreement as to the specific problem so signing off on a problem statement would be a good practice that you can do there just to make sure that, hey, this is exactly what we're going to tackle, as opposed to why you don't have enough energy on the weekend to do your laundry. That's a whole different kettle of fish. And that seems to be slightly aligned with the old Einstein quote, which is, if he had an hour to arrive at some solution to something, he'd spend 59 minutes on the problem and identifying it and one minute on actually the solution. <laughs> yeah, I hate So when I lived in the US, there's a, a couple of local versions of that. If you ask a man to cut down a tree in a week, he'll spend the first six days sharpening his axe. <laughs> hey, I like that. So what we're really talking about here, guys, I think is just asking better questions at the beginning. And being able to ask better questions is a truly great art in critical thinking and creativity. Now it's time for a thought experiment and just give some context for a thought experiment. You know, philosophers through the ages, throughout time, have been conducting what we call these thought experiments to challenge their thinking, ask better questions, shift their mental models and get really curious about the world around them. So every week we like to run our own versions of these maybe more modern day thought experiment. And John, I'll pass over to you for today's thought experiment with Mike. Thanks, Simon. And this is a particular favourite inspired by your fantastic podcast, Mike, called Moonshots. We thought we'd pose some statements about the moon. And you have to say whether it's true and otherwise known as a moonshot, whether it's false and what we'd call moonshit. All right. So <laughs> this sort of experiment is called moonshot or moonshit. So here we go. Here's your first statement. It's an easy one to start for you. The moon is the same size as the earth. Is that a moonshot or is that moonshit? The moon and the earth are the same size. Moon, shite. It's not nearly daring enough. It's not 10x, John. We got to go 10x if we're going moonshots. Come on. 
It is. It is moonshit. It's a quarter the size of the Earth. There you go. See, you we'll, go. we'll learn something along the way. Okay, so uh, let's have your next statement here. Apollo seventeen was the final lunar landing mission. Is that moonshot or moonshite? Actually landed on the moon. Mm, 17. It's a bit of a fan of this whole genre. <laughs> I think it's uh, moonshite, but for a, a different reason. The fact that it's taken us so long and we still have never been back. And that's why I just think it's a whole crock of you-know-what because – we kind of lost the ambition there for a long time. So in my books, the fact that we have not been back makes it moonshite. You think it's moonshite? It is a moonshot. Is it? Apollo 17. Was yeah. it the last and, and so, Look. Yeah. So in 1972, December the 11th, Apollo 17 had an astronaut, I think it was Eugene Cernan, uh, was on the surface of the moon and in a little um, roving vehicle, one of those little buggy things. I, oh, that sounds fun. How fun I didn't know that either. You, you, yeah. you big, you well, big yourself go. up there a little bit with, oh, I'm a fan of the genre. So. <laughs> Crash so. and burn, but hey, I that's mean, part but... of it, right? Always be learning, Simon. <laughs> Always be learning. Always right, be learning. So there we go. There I, go. Think, I think that's a learning for all of us, certainly for me. Here we go. So here we go. We've got uh, the moon is now widely recognized as being a piece of the earth that broke off and then settled into orbit around the earth. Oh, come on. That sounds like a total crock of you-know-what. No, it's a moonshot. <laughs> it's true. Is it true? <laughs> asteroid That's collision not very with the interesting. Earth. Don't you want it to be from Mars? <laughs> come on. Well, I mean, there's some real crazy sort of theories around the Earth. I think back in the early 20th century, there was a couple of people who thought it was a hollowed-out alien spacecraft, but we're not going to go there. I, I would have gone moonshit <laughs> on that one too. Like that was. I like, know. Well, yeah. I see. Look, so it's not an easy. It's not easy. No, it's not it's easy. Here we go. So good thought experiment. Domestic oh. domestic dogs grow extra hair at a rate of five times its normal growth during a full moon. Are <laughs> oh, the conspiracy theorist in me just wants to get on board with something like that? I mean, I don't even care if it's true, John. I mean, that is just. You know, when they talk about the 33rd parallel and all that kind of stuff, I'm totally down with that <laughs> stuff. Let's go. Let's make it six times. <laughs> so that's is that moonshot or moonshot? Well, I have a feeling it's moonshot, but I want it to be a moonshot. How about Yes. That? Well done, Mike. That is complete and utter moonshot or moonshot. <laughs> I think it might go with moonshot. It sounds softer. Yeah, it does. <laughs> right, here we go. We've got two more here. The moon has its own time zone. Moonshot or moonshite? Wouldn't have a clue, but I'm I'm guessing moonshot on that one. It is a moonshot. It uh, it has lunar standard time. So whilst oh the time gosh. on Earth and the Moon conforms and is the same in terms of universal time (UT), there is an actual separate time zone which took effect from the moment. Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. They then started counting. I don't know what the quite cycle is. I'm not going to find it right now, but there is now a cycle of time and a standard lunar standard time zone. There you go. John, do you think they're like, there? are they like, you know, GMT plus 7,544 or something? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I saw it on a Zoom invite the other day. 
the challenge of trying to get two people to do a simultaneous podcast there is really hard. <laughs> the time oh, difference. That, yes, forget about it, as they say <laughs> in the movies. Australia, the UK is is easy by comparison. Here mm-hmm. you go. Is the last one for you. Moonshot or moonshite? Donald Trump has laid claim to a tract of land on the moon and has plans to build the first off-planet golf course. That is just like so just deliciously bonkers that I'm going to have to say that's a moonshot, right? (laughs) It is not, but it's just so finely balanced, isn't it? It's moonshite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that like, what is the oh. fractional difference between shite and shot on that one? I mean, oh my gosh! And, and there we are. Well done, and, Mike. That's uh, <laughs> that was the uh, wonderful thought experiment: moon shot or moon shite slash shit. <laughs> now, as a not so serious business podcast, we always like to look through the lens of teams, organizations, or leaders and organizations and individuals, some of the lessons we can learn in this learning out loud. Now, looking through a moonshot perspective, and we often talk around a question does the heavy lifting. If you're a leader in an organization, what are some of those moonshot questions you should be asking? Well, I think those questions, Simon, they need to be asked of yourself first, because I think it's all good and well, like putting your finger on the map and saying, Ladies and gentlemen, this is where we're going. But my experience has been so much of it just comes down to whether the founder or the leader can live up to their promises. Can they uh, walk the walk as well as talking the talk? So I think the questions come to you. And I think those questions start with, am I vulnerable? Do I make it safe? Do I create a culture of trust for people to share how they really feel? And then you can really go through a great book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. He talks about how to get people to really high performance results. But the underlying foundation is with the behavior of the leader and their ability to create trust amongst their cohort. I think that matters more than anything else. And it's there's a big scorecard you can use there, but that's where I'd start asking the questions. And then, Mike, I think that's really interesting to start with questions that actually help you set up the environment right to be able to ask big moonshot questions, for example. And just extending from that, you mentioned this, and I've I've read through some of the stuff you've written on it, but moonshots are about the not improving things by 10%, but improving things tenfold. And Mm. it's great, isn't it? And of course, what you'll often find in teams is they're asking questions and they're being curious, and that's great. But they are going, how can we improve things? 10%, 15%, 20%. And I wonder what are the great moonshot questions, assuming we've got the safe environment, that teams should actually ask that genuinely go 10 times and not 10%. Yes. So I think the benchmark here is 10x versus 10%, as you mentioned. And I think that Jeff Bezos says, you know, be stubborn on vision but flexible on how you get there. So I think you should have a vision that truly quantifies the sort of impact that you want to have with your customers and the world around your customers, such as their community and their environment. And I think that what you need to do is commit to a vision and be prepared to 
go along for the journey and the practices of continuous learning. Stop being a victim of wishful thinking and start knowing. Test, learn, build, and repeat this cycle and have the stamina to get there because so much of the time it's not really the idea that has the real waiting in the success of a moonshot. It is the capacity of the team to do incredible things every single day, to work hard every single day. Elon Musk is, for my books, he's due every dollar he earns because there was a moment where he wrote two checks that emptied his bank account because both Tesla and uh, Solar City were in big trouble and he was prepared to give his entire wealth away to save the company. That is going to create you a moonshot. That is going to be disproportionately a big part of whether you succeed. And if you're bringing people with you on a vision of not only where you want to go, but the how you work together is built on trust and respect, and you see yourself as a leader there to get the environment for those people to be the best version of themselves, not for you to be a superstar, but for them to be the superstar, then 10x is possible. One side note here is there's a great body of thinking that 10x is actually easier than 10% better. Have you guys heard of this before? <laughs> I have not, no. but I'm glad I have no. just now. So yeah. <laughs> Okay. So here's the thinking. Now you can look it up, but if you go to make something 10% better, here's your problem. You're squeezing out of the use case some small incremental gains like everybody else in the category are doing as well. So even if you did get those gains, chances are others are doing it, or if they see what you're doing, they're able to copy it, and so your gain is lost. However, if you take some of Peter Thiel's thinking and some of Elon's thinking and go 10x, you're in a market of you, yourself, and nobody else, right, because you went 10x. It just reminds me of something I always think is, is try and find a different pitch to play on. It was always those things. Sometimes you go and you go, look, we're just going to play on the same pitch and we, we're not going to get this. But if we can change the game or change the pitch that we play on, suddenly we have some distinct advantage. Now, Mike, yeah. uh, I know you've got Europe calling in about uh, three minutes, so we want to respect that time. And we've jumped out a, a bunch of questions. We might get you back for a follow-up uh, at some time. But look, just quickly, before we head off, what are you up to next? What's exciting? And where can people buy you virtual drinks and connect with you and, and say <laughs> hi? I like the sound of these products that we keep thinking about, like virtual drinks. This sounds like, I don't know where you buy virtual drinks for each other, but you can just hit Mike Parsons in the old Google machine. But I would say that if you're into the things that we've been discussing, the three of us, just head over to moonshots.io and you can check out our show as well. And just be in an onslaught of philosophical and moonshot podcasts. I think that sounds all right for a Sunday afternoon, doesn't it? It does. And look, we I can't let you go without uh, we are building the Occupational Philosophers Manigesto, which mm -hmm. is how we think we should approach the world to be a best occupational philosopher that you can. We're building a manifesto. <laughs> we want you to add to the manigesto. Yeah. What's something you would put add to our Occupational Philosophers Manigesto? Well, I have the danger of asking a guy like me this question who's just studying others so much every single day. So I might just give you 
too much. So let me ask you this. Is there a particular category or area that you have yet to have a contribution in that you would like some thinking on? A particular subject or area, whether it's personal health, how you think, transformation. Is there an area we need to kind of put in some runs? Yeah. 10x. 10x thinking. Yeah. Oh, transformation. I would say if you wish to transform the world, start with transforming yourself. And look, on that note, Mike, we thank you so much for joining us. And we know you're a very busy man. As I said, you're the first CEO we've ever had on the show. And we appreciate your time, your insight, your creativity, and head off over to uh, moonshots.io. We have a fantastic podcast, almost as good as the Occupational Philosophers, but it's good to have a couple things on your playlist as well. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying, Sam. We're trying. (laughs) Thanks so much, Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure. John, thank you, Simon. It was both of you. It was really great fun and a good laugh too. So thanks ever so much for having me. That was great chatting and listening to Mike there. He's, he's gleaned some fantastic insights from all the people he's explored through the Moonshots podcast with Learning Out Loud. But of all of the things that he shared with us today, Simon, what are some of the takeaways for you? I really like this idea and I haven't, it's so true, but I've never heard it framed this way. In any conversation, we are all drawing pictures in our own minds, but they are all different. And I really, I love yeah. that because I've been doing some creative work recently where I've been getting some people to create some stuff for me and you type away and you think you've got it right and what comes back and you go, oh, that's not what I said. But then you realise, you, you go through it and you go, well, actually, I, you know, you realise what you're saying, your picture doesn't match their picture through nobody's, through nobody's fault. Yeah, all valid perspectives, but yeah, wildly different. And I also like this, and I use these questions all the time as well, what did we learn? What do we do next? And what do we do differently? And especially if you're working rapidly and there's joy in making quick decisions and you're testing those ideas, always come back, you know, what do we learn? What do we do next? So when you leave that little huddle, you're really clear. And what will we do differently based on that learning? So always be highly curious. What about you, John? Any lessons there of which there were many? Yeah, the themes that he picked out of that real eclectic bunch of people he's been exploring through the Moonshots podcast, that struck me. There was a, a model kind of a coherence to, to what they was common across them, which was personal transformation, a desire for, and an ability to. Critical thinking was in there. And then I think the third one he had was leadership. And it felt like they were all underpinned by this mindset, which was driven through with resilience, that that ability to come through and to overcome obstacles and the like. So, yeah, that was interesting, that model. I wouldn't have picked those as if you had to say, if I was guessing what his top three would have been, I wouldn't have, considering they're mostly entrepreneurs, I would have thought in my own mind they would have been different. But that's what I like when you learn out loud, you, you learn these different things. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting as well. He he talked about, and it's about detecting patterns, Mm. and and I thought that was really interesting because I think there's a recurrent theme there for us. And then the only other one that I thought I'd draw out from on top of what you said was the moonshot questions, which was what are the questions that individuals, leaders, teams should be asking themselves that create that 10 times improvement rather than 10% improvement? I thought that was great that he said, well, the first moonshot questions as a leader should be, 
am I creating the right environment for my team to discuss moonshot questions or dis- talk about how we would do 10 times? And that's all about creating a safe environment, being vulnerable yourself, and allowing them then to have those conversations, which are going to be sort of big and audacious. That needs safety. And talking about patterns, every time we ask this question around leadership, those three or four things come up time and time and time again. So a very nice reminder to lock into those themes, that trust, that safety, that space for ideas. And actually, there is a third takeaway. I thought that was great when Mike said, 10 times is easier than 10%. (laughs) To actually get to do something that's 10 times, actually, when you are playing at the edges or the peripheral and just trying to make those marginal gains, that's really hard and everyone's doing it. He said, if you can just take yourself to a different place and, and start to talk about 10 times and what that looks like, you're way ahead. You're you're somewhere else. You're playing a different game. Oh, so, so much goodies in this. And look, we'll get Mike uh, back on if we can squeeze a little spot in his, his diary. Uh, hopefully uh, <laughs> not too far away. So, John, look, that's the end of another great show. Well, at least in our thoughts. So, as always, how, how do we sign off? Where's a good space to go if you want to know a little bit more? Well, as ever, keep listening, subscribe, tell your friends, uh, rate the show if you can. That would be great. It's good to start building those up. Check us out on the website, which is occupationalphilosophers.com. You can email us, occupationalphilosophers at gmail.com. Or if you're into the socials and you want to connect with us that way, you can do it. uh, That's all all on the website. When you say you can email us, I almost feel like you can actually send us a fax. (laughs) (laughs) It's so old, but look, our socials are on the website, but I've forgotten what they are off the top of my head. So email, fax, telegram, or Morse code, uh, any of those we find, <laughs> or pigeon. <laughs> but as always, in the meantime, yeah, as always, <laughs> in the meantime, stay curious, make stuff, have fun, and play ball. Now, John, if you could moonshot anything in your life, 10x, what would it be? Moonshot anything? No. You- <laughs> Stop. Keep going. We can edit this. Keep going. What'd you do that for? How am I going to think of that instantly? Mm-hmm.